All right, you ready for this? Ready. This is Tom Salami. Welcome back to the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. This is episode two of 2022s. That's a lot of twos. We are going to be focusing on Depew Synthes today. I spoke with Rajit Kamal. Rajit is the worldwide president of sports medicine and shoulder reconstruction at Depew Synthes. And I talked with Andrew Ekdahl. Andrew is worldwide president of joint reconstruction at Depew Synthes. We talked a lot, obviously, about the orthopedics business. We covered Depew pretty extensively, talked about the new enhanced shoulder system and about the Velus robotic system. So it was great to have uh, have this focus on Depew Synthes. But before we get into those interviews, we're going to have a, a little bit of a different uh, setup for the podcast today. Chris Newmarker is unable to present his Newmarker's Newsmakers so I came up with a top five of my own. So I'm going to walk us through the top five episodes of 2021. This is based upon plays recorded on SoundCloud, which is our platform of choice. And uh, you'll get to see what I get to see, which is really what topics, what guests resonate with the medtech community. And while doing that, I wanted to give a bit of a state of the union, state of device talks nation to you. This will not be a a 40 to 50 minute uh, speech listing everything I want to do, but instead we'll walk through things we have done over the past two years and a few things that we're going to be doing in 2022. So before I start, uh, I did want to say, I know, I think I've told this story before. I'm pretty sure I've told it before, but uh, we came, I came to device talks in 2019 with a plan to, uh, to organize our in-person meetings. Of course, that became impossible in 2020 and 2021. And uh, instead, we pivoted with our digital strategy. We went with podcasts uh, that have uh, a podcast platform that has been extraordinarily successful. I'll have some uh, some news on uh, a new podcast coming up a little later in this episode. But I did want to say thank you. Thank you for uh, for coming along on this journey. We didn't know where it would go, if it would go anywhere at all. And uh, it turned out to be a, a fantastic journey during a very difficult time. So I'm grateful for uh, for your participation. I'm grateful for everyone who's listened or, or registered at one of our Device Talks Tuesdays webinars. And uh, I hope that, uh, that we brought you something you needed during these times. Clearly, uh, again, nothing can... Uh, can put a shine on the past two years, but uh, it's been a real experience to, to pull together with y'all during, uh, during these uh, extraordinarily historic, challenging times. So enough talking about the pandemic. I did want to let you know, uh, in 2021, we rolled out 45 Device Talks Weekly podcasts. We registered about 100,000 plays for those podcasts. So that's fantastic. We rolled out 24 Medtronic Talks podcasts. We launched out four We launched four Intuitive Talks podcasts. We'll talk about some of those a little later in the episode. We put together 28 episodes of the Device Talks Tuesdays webinar series. We had over 5,000 people register for those. So I understand the talk about Zoom fatigue. But uh, folks really do respond to uh, episodes that bring value and bring insights and bring information. So we're going to be uh, we're going to be doing that again in, in 2022, and uh, I'll have some details on some upcoming Device Talks Tuesdays episodes and uh, let you know what we have planned for the entire year. So let's start running down the top five episodes of 2021. Again, this is based upon plays. We'll start at number five, and number five was actually a a, a replay, a remake, a redo. Uh, It was our episode discussing single-use endoscopes. We had Juan Jose Gonzalez, the CEO of AMBU, Stephen Block, the president of AMBU US, Dr. Brian Duncan, chief medical officer at Boston Scientific's endoscopy business, and Dave Pierce, executive vice president at Boston Scientific and president of Boston Scientific's endoscopy business. So uh, we had the four of them on a podcast, two at a time in two interviews. And I think it's the only episode where we've had four people on it. We may have had one other. And it was uh, extraordinarily popular, which was amazing because it was extraordinarily popular in 2020 as well. It was really the first episode that took off. I remember checking in on the numbers here and there over the weekend when it went out. 
and uh, just was really <laughs> amazed at uh, how many people were uh, were tuning in, and it really kind of helped give us the boost that we needed. So I'm grateful to uh, those four gentlemen for their time. And uh, this is a session, or this is a topic rather, that we are, uh, are going to be exploring. We'll be talking about it at Device Talks Boston, which is happening on May 10th and 11th at the Boston Convention and Exhibition Center. It's going to be a great event. I know I've talked about the events by name and by date. Just to let you know, they'll consist of keynotes. We'll have keynotes with Mike Mahoney of Boston Scientific, keynotes with Shacey Petrovic of Insulet. We'll have keynotes with other senior leaders as well. And we'll have a number of panel discussions that will really drill down on uh, on topics like single-use endoscopes. We are planning to have uh, folks from AMBU and Boston Scientific, and I hope Olympus, on stage to talk about their particular programs and uh, to talk about the work that goes into uh, creating these uh really game-changing devices. So we'll have a lot of conversations like that. I've got plenty more. We're actually going to approach our conference sort of like we do our podcast. I'm, I'm making the, some of the stages available to uh, great companies like Boston Scientific, to Medtronic, to Abbott, to Stryker. We're going to allow them to talk about the issues and the challenges that they've faced and the solutions that they've come up with. So I think it'll be a nice way to really understand how these companies uh, move forward and how they find success in medtech. So once again, Device Talks Boston is happening May 10th and 11th at the Boston Convention Center in the Seaport District. We're going to open up registration next week. So if you go on devicetalks.com right now, you cannot register but that will start next week. We'll have a partial agenda up next week, one that I'll be updating throughout the spring. So uh, once again, circling back, number five was our episode about single-use endoscopes, and uh, that is driving our planning for Device Talks Boston. All right, let us move on to number four. Number four is uh, not all that surprising because the guests are or were Duke Rolene. Duke at the time was the head of Zeus Health, which was a, a private equity-backed company backed by KKR. And uh, Duke laid out sort of what his plans were to uh, to use the Zeus Health vehicle to uh, to build out a new med tech company, a large med tech company. We also had on that episode, Jeff Martha, the CEO of Medtronic. So two great guests, uh, surprised I could get them both on the same episode. And once again, listeners responded. It was our, our fourth most listened to podcast. And uh, you'll hear about Duke a little later in the podcast, what Zeus, what Zeus ultimately accomplished. And I also want to take this moment to, uh, to thank Jeff, Martha, and Medtronic for, uh, for seeing the value in the podcast platform. Of course, Medtronic would be the first to step up to work with us, work with Device Talks to create their own Medtronic Talks podcast. As I said at the top, we produced 24 episodes. They've all been extraordinarily successful. I've learned a ton about Medtronic. We talked to each of the senior leaders at their new operating units. And uh, again, I'm grateful to Jeff, Martha, and Riley Schweiger at Medtronic for her work in, uh, in helping me put this program together. The good news is that we'll be rolling out Medtronic Talks Season 2. We're still working on the details, but uh, stay tuned. You can find Medtronic Talks on the devicetalks.com website. You can find it on medtronic.com. And of course, you can subscribe to Medtronic Talks. It has its own SoundCloud channel. You can find ways to subscribe or follow or like, as Chris Newmark would say, like, follow, subscribe on Amazon, Apple, Google, and Spotify. So again, the episode with Duke Rowling and Jeff Martha was our fourth most popular per plays recorded on SoundCloud. All right, well, now let's bring in our first guest. As I said at the top, we'll be talking with Rajit Kamal. He is worldwide president of sports medicine and shoulder reconstruction at Depew Synthes. This, again, is our, our new format for the Device Talks weekly podcast. We'll be focusing on specific diseases, technologies, and companies. Talked to Olympus last week, and we're talking to Depew Synthes this week. We'll bring Andrew Ekdahl in a little later in the program. But now let's hear from Rajit Kamal of Depew Synthes. Well, Rajit Kamal, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Tom. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to learn more about your new shoulder system and about your sports medicine focus. But uh, as always, I'm always curious as to understand how our guests found their way in the medical device industry. You didn't come into the industry directly. You had some uh, some stops before uh, joining Depew. Tell us, uh, tell us about your path. 
Absolutely, Tom. So as you can see from my background, I have been with Dipune almost 14 years. But before that, I actually started my very first job was in manufacturing. I was with Procter & Gamble. I was actually an operations supervisor working on the factory floor. Uh, we, made, we made Charmin and Bounty uh, wow. paper towels. And it was a fascinating experience, Tom. I, I really enjoyed working on the factory floor. I really liked the things that you work and you see the output at the end of every day. You know, how many rolls of paper that you produce, right? So it was a great lesson in leadership as well. I was supervising about 24 operators who worked on the factory floor. And it was just a great experience for me to have. But my background, you know, I come from a family of physicians. Both my parents were physicians. My siblings are physicians. So I come from a healthcare background and have always been interested in healthcare. So even though I did not choose the path to be a physician, uh, healthcare has always been an area of interest and passion for me. So while I was at PNG, I really enjoyed the experience. I learned about leadership. I learned about, you know, how to work in a corporate environment. But I always had that urge to move towards healthcare. So I left PNG to go to business school and then post business school joined Boston Consulting Group to do strategy consulting. I was in the Boston office where most of the work uh, at that time was being done in healthcare. So I did a lot of healthcare work at BCG. We worked with pharmaceutical companies. We worked with providers. We worked with payers. I remember consumer-driven healthcare was the big thing. Those This is about 2005, so almost uh, 17 years back now. But those were fascinating areas to look at. And then I joined a company called InnoSight, disruptive innovation company started by Clay Christensen, who was a professor at HBS, you know, where I got my MBA. And uh, I knew some people through my HBS network and uh, they were just, you know, working on their healthcare practice. J&J was a very big client. Mm -hmm. So I joined the team. And again, the ideas of disruptive innovation are fascinating. I joined the team, worked specifically for J&J. J&J was my client where while I was at InnoSight. And again, a very fascinating experience. Looking at the descriptions you have for InnoSight, you look like you work in an obesity project in the medical device industries, worked with a chemical or in business related to chemical raw materials, and also uh, a mental health company. So uh, you really had a, a wide range of opportunities there to, to experience different parts of medtech. Absolutely. And yeah. that got me really interested in medical devices at that time. And, you know, my engineering background with the business background that I have, that combination would be a great fit for a medical device organization. So while I was working at InnoSight, an opportunity came up with J&J in the Boston area. And that is how I landed at DPU. And they were looking for somebody with experience in strategy and innovation. And I thought my experience with BCG and then with InnoSight, where we talked about innovation, really gave me the right experience to go for that role. And that is how I ended up at Depew. actually started in our sports business. And then over the last 14 years, I have been very fortunate to have a very diversified experience within Depew Synthes. I have worked in multiple roles. I've worked across geographies, worked across, across businesses, worked across functions, and it has been a great journey for me. And I love, I have a lot of passion for medical technology, uh, and I really love what I do and get a lot of satisfaction from the difference our products makes in lives of patients around the world. You joined Depew and you've stayed with uh, orthopedics for your career, as far as I can tell. Is there something about specifically about the orthopedics field that just stuck with you and made you want to stay? It seems like if you, it seems as if, you, as if you were on a path maybe to explore other specialties, other technologies, but you've been with orthopedics since joining MedTech. What is it about orthopedics you like? You know, orthopedics is a fascinating uh, segment within medical devices. I think, you know, I like the fact that we work very closely with our clinicians. You know, innovation in orthopedic happens when you work with your clinicians, you work with engineers. Uh, so I like that. That's one. The second thing I would say is you can see the impact it makes on patients, right? It's about mobility. I have family members. It's very interesting, Tom. If you do a town hall and you ask people how many of you have friends or family who have musculoskeletal issues or have benefited from our products, a lot mm -hmm. of hands go up. My mother, she passed away last year, but my mother had total knee replacement and she had diffusing knees. And I could see the impact it made in her life, right? So I think, you know, working with the clinicians, seeing the impact our products make in lives of patients, and you can see that impact clearly. People start moving, people get back to activity. I think those are the things about orthopedics uh, that has always that. Plus, you know, it's, 
the complexity, and when I say complexity, orthopedic is a very resource intensive business. You know, you have to have understand how the supply chain works, how the inventory works, the importance of education. It's just a fascinating, I would say, industry to be in. And I have been very fortunate, even though I have been in orthopedics, I have done uh, different parts of orthopedics. You know, I started in sports, I have worked in knees, I have had an opportunity to work across when I was in Asia, work across different segments of orthopedics, you know, trauma, spine. I have done different functions. So I have done commercial roles, pricing, strategy, business insights, and I have done different regions as well. I have been in global roles. I have led our business in Asia Pacific. So even though I've been within orthopedics, I have had a very diverse experience. But what I like about orthopedics is ability to work closely with the clinicians, the unmet needs and the impact it has on the patients. And that's just the general complexity of the business. I think, you know, as a business leader, I find that fascinating. I find that challenging and I find that interesting. Orthopedics is obviously a very large umbrella with lots of different things underneath it, including you mentioned spine, trauma, there's extremities, sports medicine, obviously large joint. Is there a common trait to all of them that someone working in the field benefits from working in all those different subsets or are those subsets so different that you could really benefit from specializing in trauma or sports medicine and and never selling into the other parts of, of orthopedics? I think there are there are similarities, Tom. I think the first similarity, as I mentioned, is this is a business where you have to develop relationships, relationships with your customers. It's the end of the day, we are in a relationship business, right? So I think working closely with our customers is an aspect that cuts across, right? The complexity, we talk about the complexity of the business, understanding how supply chain works, you know, how do you manage inventory? How do you optimize inventory? How do you drive efficiency? The shift we are seeing to an outpatient center, all these are common across different businesses, right? The adoption of technology, you know, orthopedics has been a little bit behind the curve, but it is catching up very quickly. And I think the impact of technology, again, cuts across different businesses, whether it is robotics, whether it is artificial intelligence, whether it is augmented reality. So I think I see a lot of similarities. Obviously, the businesses have their distinct flavors, right, with spine or with sports. But I think there are a lot of commonalities where one can leverage their experience and expertise in one area to be able to make a difference in the other. I have seen a lot of similarities and, you know, even customers as well. It's it's very interesting. In the US, you see a lot of surgeons specializing. So you are just a knee replacement surgeon or a hip replacement surgeon. If you go outside the US, you will see surgeons doing many things. You will see surgeons who are doing joint replacement, doing sports, sometimes doing trauma as well, right? So more of an anatomy focus. You will see a surgeon who is focused on knees and does trauma sports joints, right? So again, as you go outside the US, you see more of these spine trauma joints coming together in a practice for a particular surgeon. So again, lot of similarities, Tom. Obviously, they have individual flavors, but you know, need for education, need for supply chain efficiency, need for, you know, working with the clinicians, the impact technology can have are very, very similar. Great. And I, I want to talk in a moment about sports medicine and shoulder reconstruction where you're currently worldwide president. But uh, prior to that, you were vice president of Asia Pacific. I think you were based in, in Singapore, but most of your career has been in the Boston area. I think you spent some time in, in Warsaw as well, Indiana. How did the opportunity in Asia Pacific come about? What were you doing there? What brought you back to lead the sports medicine and shoulder reconstruction group? Absolutely. I mean, look, you know, Asia Pacific is the most dynamic region we have in the world. If you look at our business, Asia Pacific is very dynamic and very diverse. So you have markets like China that are growing at double digits, right? With a lot of dynamism when it comes to digital. I mean, China probably is the most dynamic market when it comes to digital technology. Investment they are making in terms of artificial intelligence is significant. If you think about Asia Pacific and just talking about Asia Pacific and digital, Tom, when you look at the fundamental drivers of digital technology, Asia Pacific has all of them. The one is access. You have access challenges in Asia Pacific and technology can really close that gap. You have aging population where, again, technology can play a significant role. And as you know, there are a lot of aging population in Asia Pacific. Uh, So what is happening is that the government in Asia Pacific is really getting engaged in driving investment, driving focus. So that was a very important aspect, very interesting aspect of being in Asia. 
So you have markets like China, you have markets like Japan that are a lot more mature. You have markets like India that are very, very price sensitive. So the diversity of challenges that you get in Asia Pacific is very fascinating. And I was very fascinated by that. And, and I wanted to get an experience in the region. Obviously, I grew up in India, so I have affinity for Asia Pacific. But just the complexity of the challenges, the diversity of the challenges, dynamism of the region really attracted me towards getting an experience there. Now, my tenure in Asia Pacific overlapped with COVID. So it impacted some of my travel within the region. I did a lot of work sitting here in Boston, Tom, just because because Singapore was close, right? But look, you know, with technology, we were able to bridge the gap. I used to work in the evenings and nights. So the time zone challenges were there. But I really enjoyed, even though, you know, I was there for a year, I really had a very good experience working in Asia and learning about these markets. And these markets are fundamentally very, very different. So the reason that role came about was I wanted to, again, work outside the U.S. Most of my work experience has been in the U.S. I wanted to experience the dynamism, the diversity, the complexity of the Asia-Pacific market. And I'm very grateful that I was able to get this experience. Excellent. Well, let's talk about your current role. It started October 2021, your worldwide president of sports medicine and shoulder reconstruction. Give us an overview of uh, of your business. What areas do you cover? What products do you sell? Absolutely. So this is a diversified business. We are about a billion dollars in sales. And we have four distinct segments, Tom, right? So we have a shoulder reconstruction business, which is very much like a joint reconstruction business. We have a soft tissue repair business, which is with the sports, right? ACL repair, rotator cuff repair. We have a capital business. So we sell capital arthroscopic equipment, right? Whether it is visualization tower, whether it is, you know, fluid management pumps. And then we have what we call is an early intervention business where we sell an injectable uh, and hyaluronic acid injection to manage pain because of osteoarthritis. So again, four different distinct segments, right? And the fundamentals and the business drivers are distinct and different in these four. About a billion dollar in sales for us. The business maturity is different by different regions. You look at markets like Asia, where we are still early in our maturity curve and again, provide significant opportunity. Markets like US and Western Europe are further along. So that's the business. You know, as I said, we sell, you know, anchors and sutures for soft tissue repair. We sell joint replacement implant in shoulder. We sell injectables and then we sell capital equipment. It's a global business, about a billion dollars in sales. Let's focus on, on, on shoulder. I mean, that's a space that's obviously really advanced or has become advanced over the last decade or so. To the point, as you said, it's, it's another, another joint, hip, knee, and now shoulder. How is it like the other joints and how is it different? So I will say a couple of things. So, so number one, it's a faster growing, right? So it's smaller. The volumes are smaller, but it is the faster growing. So the data will tell you that shoulder is probably growing at least two times the rate of hip and knee replacement. So that's one. The second thing I would say is it has significant opportunity to make a difference. I think technology can play a much bigger difference when it comes to shoulder joint, right? The third thing I would say is the business is not as mature globally as hip and knee replacement are. You go to markets like China, say, for example, where hip and knee is a big business, but shoulder is just getting started. And that creates an opportunity to create the market, to drive education. Education plays a very big role. So I would say it's a smaller business, but faster growing. Uh, It's not as mature, and that creates an opportunity for an organization like ours to come in and drive the market creation, drive education, address unmet needs. The third thing I would say is it's a pretty right field for technology, augmented reality, planning, robotics, right? So I think those are the areas that I would say makes shoulder a very, very interesting space to be in. What are the opportunities in technology and are they unique to shoulder? Is it more helpful or most helpful in shoulder to have uh, AR, to have sort of VR training? Is it similar to hip and knee in the opportunities there for, for those sort of technologies? There are a lot of similarities, Tom, right? But look, shoulder is a, I would say, a tighter joint than their knee. You know, when you do a knee replacement, it's a much open procedure, right? So I think technology is like, I would say, planning. Where can you use artificial intelligence to plan your surgery? Can you use robotics to be able to execute on the surgery? You know, I think augmented reality is a great way. You know, if it's a 
uh, augmented reality helps surgeries in shoulders especially in knee you know everything is exposed in shoulder not everything is exposed and that's where augmented reality technology really helps for a surgeon to understand what they're doing where they are going so there are similarities i would say shoulder and hip replacement has probably a lot more similarities than it has with knees but technology in terms of planning technology in terms of surgical execution and then pre and post operative right how do you track patients pre operatively how do you track patients post operatively and how do you connect data across the care continuum all those are very similar between i would say hips and knees and what is i don't want to say well i'll say holding back and then i'll and then i'll say i don't want to say holding back but what are the challenges in, in growing the shoulder market is it people are just more likely to have a hip or knee replaced cuz the pain is more severe and they're not really aware of the shoulder opportunities is it a shortage of trained surgeons and clinicians who can do the shoulder surgeries what are the things you need to overcome to grow this market to grow the market we're talking about not not just our business yes so first i think the point around education ensuring that we have more trained surgeons and this is more outside the us you know around the world i think that is important and that is where technology can actually play a very important role because technology has the potential to level the playing field the other thing with shoulder tom is because the volumes are not that high you find very few surgeons who just focus on shoulder replacement like you will find lot of surgeons who just do knee replacement because volumes are high enough for them to be able to just specialize right so with shoulders you will actually find lot of lower volume surgeons because they are doing sports they're probably doing trauma they're probably doing something else as well right so i think technology can actually play a very very important role there to be able to grow the market i think and look if you have a shoulder problem it is actually disruptive you can't raise your hands right you can't raise your hands above your shoulders right so it creates discomfort so i think the most important thing to be able to grow the market is obviously creating awareness but also ensuring that we are driving education we are driving the right products with the right technology i think technology will play a very important role this market as i said is growing twice the rate of hip and knee replacement so the market growth rate is pretty healthy i would say a market which is on the higher levels of maturity curve in us in western europe uh, but as i as we go to asia as we go to latin america that is where the opportunity is to be able to create the market educate surgeons and drive that market creation perfect and final question you rolled out your new shoulder surgery platform enhance tell us a bit about the product the technology why it's better than what it was and how are you rolling out what is it what does that look like Yeah, well, look, it is an exciting platform. So, Enhance is our new shoulder replacement system that we started rolling out at the end of last year, and we plan to expand it this year and years moving forward. There are a few things that makes it stand out. Number one, it's the only system that is fully integrated. So, you know, the the anatomic shoulder and a reverse shoulder, it's a it's the same system. It's very efficient. It was designed with outpatient centers in mind, right? So, it has two trays. as compared to six or seven trays that that other shoulder platforms have right so it's a very efficient surgery it has great sizing line it provides intraoperative flexibility we think it is the next generation of shoulder replacement platform uh, we have both anatomic and reverse uh, we are we are waiting for uh, fda clearance for our reverse system it has short stem it has stemless it has all the options that you would need for a complete shoulder replacement platform the early feedback has been very encouraging and we are very excited about the potential of this platform and we are excited to uh, reach patients around the world and and the impact that this can make with the sizing line with the efficiency and with all the features that have been planned in the system oh that's great rajit thank you for uh, for the peek inside of the sports medicine and shoulder business at tpu and uh, for sharing your uh, your path into medtech glad to have you on the podcast Tom it was a pleasure speaking with you thank you so much for having me All right and we're back hope you enjoyed that conversation with Rajit Kamal I'm happy to say Rajit will be speaking at Device Talks Boston and uh, he's an advisor on our Device Talks meetings so uh, grateful for him to step up and to contribute to the Device Talks community Now let's uh, go back to our review of the most listened to episodes of Device Talks weekly Number 3 again not a surprise it focused on Sapien and Taver. We spoke with Stan Rowe who's a former CEO of PVT the creator of the Sapien heart valve 
And Larry Wood, corporate vice president at Edwards, which acquired the heart valve a decade ago or over a decade ago and got approval a decade ago. And we talked about the, uh, so the story of Sapien from the early days to the later days, talked about the, poten- the, the, the possibility or the potential uh, of, or opportunity of, of TAVR and, in the, stru- and the structural heart space. And uh, again, it's a, it's a space that has resonated with people so much so that we had a second episode with uh, Santosh Prabhu of Abbott. Chris Newmarker interviewed Santosh. And I spoke with Nina Goodhart of Medtronic about their TAVR programs, really covered all the players in the TAVR space. So again, looking at the podcast, it really sort of drives what we're able to do in our other areas. We'll certainly talk about Structural Heart in one of our upcoming in-person device talks meetings, but we're absolutely positively going to talk about it on February 8th at 4 p.m. in our very first episode of Device Talks Tuesdays. Device Talks Tuesdays, of course, it's our weekly meetings. We, we meet uh, most every Tuesday on uh, at 4 p.m. Eastern for uh, an online discussion, much like the ones you'd see at our in-person meetings uh, on some of the hotter topics in MedTech. And this certainly is that. The, uh, the episode will be sponsored by Spectrum Plastics. And the, t- the title is How New Delivery Systems Are Enabling Advanced Structural Heart Therapies. And I'm very, very, very happy to tell you that uh, in addition to Mike Schultz at Spectrum Plastics, We'll have Santosh Prabhu, and he's the Divisional Vice President of Product Development at Abbott Structural Heart, and Stan Rowe, the CEO of NXT Biomedical. They are both going to be uh, on the panel to talk about uh, their work in Structural Heart, and uh, it's going to be a great opportunity to hear directly from them, not only hear directly from them, but also ask them questions. So uh, please do go to devicetalks.com and register for that episode. Again, it happens on February 8th at 4 p.m. And it's sponsored by Spectrum Plastics. Okay, now let's go on to the second most popular episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast, the second most listened to episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. It was centered on pulse field ablation. Again, another hot space. We spoke with Rebecca Seidel at Medtronic, uh, Dr. Ken Stein at Boston Scientific, and Dr. Steve Mickelson of Acutus Medical. But Steve Mickelson was the founder of Farapulse, which was acquired by Boston Scientific. So we really covered all of the players in that space. And uh, it was a great opportunity to dive deep in one of the hotter areas of medtech. And I'm happy to say that we will be talking about this once again at Device Talks Boston. Ken Stein is an advisor to Device Talks. And I spoke with him just this week about putting together a panel. Clearly, it's a, it's a space that made news this week with uh, Medtronic's acquisition of Afera. I did connect with uh, the CEO of Afera, Doran Harley, and uh, very happy to hear that he listens to the podcast. So uh, we'll we'll be talking with uh, with leaders in the pulse field ablation space. We're building out that, that panel as we speak. But uh, once again, if you want to hear directly from these leaders in MedTech, consider registering for Device Talks Boston. All right, finally, now let's find out what the most listened to episode of the Device Talks weekly podcast is. It centered around the interventional space and involved conversations with Nick West, Dr. Nick West, CMO of Vascular at Abbott. And once again, Duke Rolene. Duke comes back not only as the head of Zeus Health, but now as executive chairman of Cordis. Zeus Zeus would, of course, go on to acquire Cordis. And uh, in that conversation with Duke, he explained what his plans are to, uh, to sort of help redirect Cordis. And we also spoke with Nick West, actually Sean Hooley, my colleague Sean Hooley, spoke with Dr. West about Abbott's Zion's drug-eluting stents. So it was a, a, another great opportunity to focus on a space in MedTech, a growing space in MedTech. And you folks responded. It was the most listened to episode of the device talks weekly podcast and yes i'm uh, i'm eager i'm hopeful that we'll have dr west and duke Rolene speak at our future uh device talks either device talks minnesota which is happening on june 6th and 7th or device talks santa clara which is happening in october which seems so far away october 19th and 20th so please do put those on your calendars we'll be uh, we'll be revisiting these hot topics at those meetings. I promised earlier that we'll have some news on the podcast front, but first, let's run this interview I did with Andrew Ekdahl. He is Worldwide President of Joint Reconstruction at Depew Synthes. Well, Andrew Ekdahl, welcome to the podcast. 
Thank you very much for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Same here, same here. So uh, we, we always begin these talks, finding out how folks got into the medical device industry, and you've been in our industry for a good time. I'd like to take us back to, to minute one. What was, uh, what was your entry point into MedTech? Uh, great question. My entry point was in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. Um, <laughs> of course it was. At, yeah, of course it was, right? As a orthopedic sales representative. Wow. I'd worked for Procter & Gamble before that and had a couple other jobs. A friend of mine worked in medical devices, selling surgical gowns and drapes and everything like that. And it sounded like a really cool thing to do. A couple of weeks later, I got a call to interview and was the selected candidate. And uh, it's been an incredible journey ever since then. Well, that's great. And let's uh, then kind of walk us through your career a little bit. You've been in orthopedics for a long time. You were, you were president of Ethicon Surgical for a time. Has your career primarily been in orthopedics? So other than the a short period of time where I was in, I'll call it consumer goods, both with Procter & Gamble and with a couple of advertising agencies very early in my career, mm-hmm. all the rest has been in medical devices, as you mentioned, Ethicon. But the vast majority of that time has been in orthopedics. And what do you like about orthopedics? It's obviously, uh, it holds some alert for you. What I love about orthopedics is the challenge is extraordinary. Mm-hmm. The, the challenge of innovation in orthopedics, advancing orthopedic care. I really enjoy orthopedic surgeons. You know, orthopedic surgeons will constantly challenge us. They challenge themselves all of the time to do better and be better. And I really love that constant challenge of always striving to do things better and be better. You add to that then the technology that is orthopedic implants Mm -hmm. and that's evolving really quickly into some amazing spaces, which I'm sure we're going to get to. Sure. When you bring all that together where your customer always wants to be better, they always want you to be better. It is a relationship business and you've got really cool technology and you work with great people. What's not to attract you to that space? That's what makes it so attractive for me. Is there a clinician, a surgeon who works as closely with industry as orthopedic surgeons do with orthopedic companies? That seems to be a tight fit in a good way. So I think it is very productive. And I think cardiology is, is certainly sure. there. I think dentistry, in some instances, high-end dentistry is, is, has gotten there as well. The secret sauce is the combination. I, I call it the golden triangle. And it's the golden triangle of the orthopedic surgeon or surgeons. It might be a, might be a team, right? Engineers and research and development people. You know, it could be one. It could be a team of people. And business people, marketing people who collectively find unmet needs and then collectively solve those unmet needs. And when that golden triangle is working and working well, meaning the surgeons or surgeon, research and development, and the business people all work together and respect one another and share each other's opinions, insights, observations, that golden triangle works extremely well. And that's what drives innovation. And I think it works particularly well in orthopedics, but I really don't think that you can develop any medical device that is used by a surgeon without having insights from that particular user group. You just can't do it. When you try it and you do it, typically it doesn't work out so well. That's a great point. Well, you mentioned innovation and you sort of alluded to it at the start. For most of the time I've covered medtech, I've seen, and it's, and I think it's been conveyed to me that orthopedics was an area where there was very little innovation because the implants worked very well. They did the job. We have certainly, and, and you can tell me that I'm wrongheaded for thinking that, but we certainly have seen an acceleration of innovation over the last 10 years or so with robotics and sensors and such. First, tell me, am I wrong in my initial feelings that there wasn't a lot of innovation in orthopedic implants other than perhaps maybe materials? There have been people who said, and I've heard it said, the S-curve in innovation in orthopedics is over, and it's not. We have an incredible amount of opportunity still. Are orthopedic implants today very, very successful? Yes, they are. They're very successful. Of the five surgical procedures, top five surgical procedures that enhance quality of life, hip and knee arthroplasty are in that top five. 
So we know it's successful. But the variability is still very, very wide. And the burden is still very, very high of doing orthopedic surgery. So I still believe there's room in the core of the implant. There's still room for innovation there. And I'll tell you, I think 10 years from now, there will be a massive further leap in innovation. We can come back to that. Maybe not 10 years might be shorter than that, but we can come back to that. But the innovation around the implant is also where the vast majority of the excitement is today. And when you think about practicing orthopedic, there are so orthopedics, there are so many jobs to be done, so many ways to solve those issues. Let's face it, it's a physically demanding surgery. So if we can bring innovation to the table that reduces the physical burden of doing orthopedic surgery on the surgeon and Mm -hmm. the rest of the OR team to put the implant in, that's extreme innovation, particularly today. The orthopedic surgeon, when I started a long, long time ago, my busiest surgeon did three surgical procedures a week. Wow. Okay. Today, busy surgeons, I was in the operating room two weeks ago with a very busy surgeon. He did nine surgeries that day. And he has days like that two and three days a week. And you hear very frequently of surgeons who do more than eight, nine, 10, 12 cases a day. So, the physical burden of practicing orthopedics has gone up dramatically. If we can do things to reduce that physical burden, that's innovation. Site of care change in the US, in particular, COVID substantially changed the site of care from the multi specialty hospital to the ambulatory surgery center. Mm-hmm. I believe the robot that we have developed, the Velus Robotic Assisted Solution, is very, very well suited for surgery in the ambulatory surgery center. It's got a very small footprint. It's cost-effective to use and operate. It's cost-effective to purchase. So it's leaning in to these advances in healthcare. And that's really where a lot of the innovation will happen. Doesn't mean we won't continue to innovate on implants. Absolutely. If you don't have the best implant, it doesn't matter if you've got a robot, doctors aren't going to use it because they're not going to compromise the implant outcome. So lots to talk about. The, the number of surgeries that are done today, the, the surgeons doing almost threefold what they were doing when you started, is that a result of the new, the answer is probably both. Is that a result of the new technology that's being developed that makes it easy? Or is this more of a systems improvement that they have developed a systems where they can kind of get in and get out faster? It's a whole assortment of things, not the least of which is the economics of practice. Mm-hmm. You have to have some volume to make a living. Um, yep. And so there's that, of course, then you add to that, that the procedure, not just the procedure where they're doing the implant, not just that piece of it, but the whole procedure has become more efficient, whether it's different anesthesia, smaller incisions that make the procedure slower, instruments that are more accurate, easier to use and work better, a wider assortment of implants. You might think that makes the procedure more complicated. Actually, it makes the procedure easier and faster. Hmm. So there, are, I think there are a whole assortment of things that have led to the ability for surgeons to do more cases in a day. But a lot of it has been things that the orthopedic surgeons have streamlined out of the surgical procedure to become more efficient. It's back to that innovative mindset that is the orthopedic surgeon and their constant quest to be better all of the time that's really led to their ability to do this. And it's, you know, economics to a large extent underpins some of that as well. Again, that's a piece of the innovation that you have to think about and reflect on, which mm-hmm. is it took innovative thinking to go from three cases a day to nine. That's a great point. And I'm intrigued as all heck about your, uh, where we'll be in five to 10 years. I'm going <laughs> to save that one for the end, a little teaser for the audience. So let's, let's dive into, into Vellus. We had some recent news, or I saw some recent news where uh, there was a, a case being reported of Vellus being used in Australia, which kind of left me a little confused as to the status of the system, because I thought you had clearance. What is the state of Vellus's approval and availability globally, and particularly in the U.S.? So um, you're right. There was an announcement that came from Australia. I think it was uh, last week or so where we had done some cases in Australia. Those were the first cases in Australia. In the United States, we received uh, FDA clearance for the Velos Robotic Assisted Solution with the Attune Knee uh, back in January of this year. 
And we began doing some early cases in March. And then through the summer and really at the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons in August is when the Velus Robotic Assisted Solution became more widely available here in the United States. Today, we're doing cases in uh, Australia, in New Zealand, here in the United States. Uh, and as you can appreciate, next year, there will be uh, even more geographic expansion of the Velus Robotic Assisted Solution. We're really excited about that. So let's talk then about the rollout. How, how have things gone? And what have you learned? I'll tell you, here are my biggest learnings and biggest insights is surgeons initially, when they use the robot, they're incredibly intrigued by the accuracy of the cuts. They're intrigued by the speed at which they can perform the procedure. But what really intrigues them in the end is the ability to use the computer technology in combination with the robotic assisted arm. It's their ability to use those two things and bring them together for a more accurate knee and a more well-balanced knee. They're all on almost the same journey as they begin to adopt and use this particular technology. They're first amazed by the cuts. Secondarily, they're amazed by the information that they're getting that they feel is going to provide a better outcome. So we've heard a lot of uh, surgical robotic news coming from J&J, largely centered around Otava and, and Oris. I think maybe Dulles has sort of got lost in all of that. So just for the sake of myself, for the benefit of myself and people listening, this is a completely different project than all of that. You have not had to delay rollouts. You're, you're going full steam ahead with Velis. This is, this is your entry into the orthopedic surgical robotic space. That is correct. And it will evolve to become a platform. Mm-hmm. But today, it is, a, it is our Velis robotic assisted solution for use with the Attune knee system. So what has the market been like? How receptive has it been? I talked with Kevin Lobo Stryker a couple of weeks ago, and, and they've placed their thousandth Mako, and he's excited that there's more entries in the space because it just increases the conversation about robotics. What sort of reception have, have you received from orthopedic surgeons? The reception has been incredibly positive, and the reception from the surgeon community has been very, very positive as well. And I would agree with what Kevin says. Competition is good. It forces everybody to be better. It makes everybody become thoughtful about what they're purchasing and what they're looking at. And we are very, very early in the robotics evolution in orthopedics. So I'm very, very excited about the point at which we entered. I'm very, very excited about the platform that we are entering with. And I think we're going to have a significant impact on the overall robotics market in knees in particular to start with. If I'm doing a, a comparison with included with Velis, what boxes are you checking that would make it a preferred system for surgeons? Uh, is it, you mentioned earlier, the price? Is it the size? Obviously, the surgical performance has to be there too. But what are the characteristics of Velis that help it stand out from what's already out there? Well, I'll tell you what we get from mm-hmm. the surgeon community. A couple things we get is obviously the knee platform. They're very comfortable with the Attune knee platform, but relative to the actual robot, the things that we get most often is the profile of it. It's very low profile. It's very, very easy to move around the operating room and to operate around and use. And so they're, they're very comfortable and very confident with that. And the other piece that we get is beyond the overall profile is that they don't need to do imaging prior to the procedure. Hmm. So all of the work that's done is based on a computer-assisted surgery workflow. So they use arrays, they use bony landmarks to do all the surgical planning in the operating room at the time of the surgical procedure. There's no CT scan required in the organization of getting a CT scan, the cost of a CT scan, et cetera. So they very much like the profile of it, and, and it allows them in the operating room to still have the relationship in the operating room with everybody else they work with because it's low profile. They don't have to arrange and do imaging. They can do it at the time of the case, the day of the case, at the moment of the case. They like that. And then they love the data and the information that they get during the surgical procedure as they're balancing the knee. So they like the attune implant. They like the profile. They like the lack of having to get you know imaging and CT. And then they uh, love the information they're getting from the robot to help them balance the knee. Great breakdown. 
it seems to me that an orthopedic implant company needs to have a robotic system to compete going forward. That if you're going to, you need to have a, a hospital or surgeons sort of buy into your platform, it's going to be hard just to sell implants one-off. Is that correct? So I think that over time, surgeons are going to demand technology that helps them reduce the physical burden of performing orthopedic surgery and provides them with information to perform the surgery even better as they continually and consistently strive to be better and reduce the physical burden. So I think as an implant company, you've got to show up with implants that do the job. You've got to show up with a viable range of implants, implants that have proven clinical outcomes, which we do, but then you're going to have to support your implant platforms with these enabling technologies. It's going to be a requirement for all of the players to have a variety of technologies that support their implants. And final question about Velis. You mentioned ambulatory surgery centers. Is this is that a specific target for your system? Is it being billed as something that's going to be more attractive to smaller facilities? So we think the value proposition plays well in the ambulatory surgery center. That doesn't mean that it doesn't play very well in the multidisciplinary larger hospital. It plays very, very well in both. It's just the profile of it, the size of it, and the portability, we think, make it a more compelling choice for an ambulatory surgery center. And somewhat related question, and I, I'm tired of asking COVID questions, but I'll, but I'll do it. You were rolling out in a year when we were getting back to elective surgeries, but there's been sort of pauses and unpauses. How, how has COVID sort of affected the rollout of Vellis, but also business overall at Depew? So COVID has impacted elective surgery. Sure for every discipline, whether it's elective hip and knee or elective bariatric surgery. Mm -hmm. It's affected all elective surgery. And I think today, to some degree, we're moving past what I would call the pure COVID impact because hospitals have learned to work around that and learn to serve patients around that. The challenge you have today is around staffing. Mm -hmm. And that's probably the bigger issue today, which is the dynamics of the nursing environment, the traveling nurses um, versus nurses that, that stay permanently located in a hospital. And then there is just nursing burnout, hospital and care team burnout. And so I think that is probably the biggest challenge that will face overall, uh, the overall operation of hospitals in the near term. I don't think it's going to last for a, you know, a long period of time because it will settle out, but that is going to have an impact, I think, here in the near term. And now I want to bring us back to, uh, to innovation and, and where we're headed. What are you working on at Depew that is incorporating the, the technology reference earlier? We're seeing implants now with sensors. We're seeing a lot of move down in that direction. What do you have that's new, that's exciting? What do you have that's coming up? And, and let's answer the question as to where we're going to be in, in five or 10 years. Well, when we look at our innovation, and I'll speak to it more broadly, is you know we are putting more and more dollars of our innovation toward more and more digital and enabling technologies. Sure. As we evolve to being a med tech company, we're going to put our more of our investment there. And I think our customers expect us to do that. It does not mean that we're not going to continue to innovate in our core. Because we have to have a continue to have a healthy core business and then evolve with these med tech solutions. But the med tech solutions that we'll continue to work on have to solve a particular issue, a particular problem, a job to be done, if you will. Because if you're not solving a problem, if you're a technology looking for a problem, you're not going to be successful. But finding a problem and then using technology to solve that issue and solve that problem is what will make you successful. It's, mm -hmm. It is a bit back to bringing that, that golden triangle I talked about up front together to make sure you're actually solving a problem. And I think sometimes you see technology come into a market that people think is just cool, mm -hmm. but the technology fizzles because it's not creating value. And in healthcare, if you are not creating value, you are not going to be successful in healthcare. You're just not going to make it. And so our challenge will continue to be to solve a true issue and do that using technology on the back end with supporting 
ensuring that we have the very best implants to go with that. And that's a great point. I think just in general, data for data's sake is not necessarily going to be a winning strategy, uh, especially when you have, to your point, physicians who are, who are doing eight surgeries a day and don't have time to review something coming in. So where is this, this sector headed? What sort of innovation do you think we'll be seeing in the coming years? I think there will be on the back of robotics, there will eventually be some very interesting evolution to implant design. And particularly when you combine that with some potentially some new materials and even 3D printing, Mm -hmm. that's out in the future. There's no doubt about that. And I think you'll see that, but you can't do that until the technology becomes more ubiquitous, until it's more widely available. And so I think we're at this we're at this point, this revolution where technology like robotics is going to become very, very widely used and very, very widely available. And then when that, is, when that happens, then it will become used to evolve the implant designs. It, and a, you know, a great example of that is, you know, I, I look at it, you buy a car today, would you buy a guidance system in a car today? If you went to buy a new car and they said to you, the guidance system is $2,000. Would you buy that guidance system? If they told you it was $100, you wouldn't buy the guidance system because you've got a better guidance system in your hand with your telephone. Mm -hmm. And so that's the type of evolution that I think we're headed toward in orthopedics as well. But like the map on your cell phone is ubiquitously available, constantly upgrading, tells you where the traffic is, where it isn't, where the rest stations are, how to get gas, where you can get gas the cheapest. All that stuff is in your hand. We have to get the robot in the hands of everybody. And then once it's there, you'll see this evolution that will come using the data that's being generated for implant design. But the technology has to be very widely available before you can get there. Makes sense to me. Well, this has been a great conversation, Andrew. I appreciate you joining us on the podcast. Thank you very much for your time today. All right, and we're back. Thanks again to Andrew Ekdahl for joining us on the podcast. And yes, yes, yes. Andrew will be a speaker at Device Talks Minnesota. That's happening again on June 6th and 7th in Minnesota at the Hyatt Regency, right by the convention center. So uh, excited to have Andrew as part of that program as well. We'll also have Kevin Lobo of Stryker, Tim Herbert of Inspire, and we're lining up other speakers as I speak. Not at this particular moment, but I'm working on it. We'll get you other speakers. All right. So. We're going to wrap up this episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. I promised you some news. We'll give you some news. So as I said at the top, uh, Medtronic sort of led the way, allowing us to create the Medtronic Talks Podcast. Uh, we then followed up with Intuitive Talks, which, is, which has been an enormous success. We will continue with Intuitive Talks in 2022. We're working on the final schedule right now. I can tell you the interview I did with Gary Guthard, the CEO, the first episode of Intuitive Talks was our most listened to podcast episode of 2021. So uh, clearly Intuitive Story is resonating. Uh, we will be putting out the fourth episode of Intuitive Talks uh, early next week. So keep an eye out for that. That goes out through our Device Talks Weekly podcast channel. So if you subscribe to Device Talks Weekly, you will get Intuitive Talks and you will get our newest podcast, Stryker Talks. Yes, very happy to be working with Stryker on their own podcast. It'll be another podcast powered by Device Talks. We're going to be rolling that out in February. I'll talk with Spencer Stiles, group president and head of ortho at Stryker. And we'll be talking with other business leaders at Stryker once a month in 2022. So we'll be sending the Stryker Talks podcast out, most likely through the Device Talks weekly channel. So if you're subscribing to Device Talks Weekly, you will also get Intuitive Talks and you will also get Striker Talks. So I hope you like a lot of great podcasts because they are coming your way. So thank you again to everyone who has been part of this digital journey on Device Talks Weekly and on Device Talks Tuesdays. Thanks, of course, to my partner in crime, Chris Newmarker. I literally could not have put this together uh, without him. He... Uh, when I, when I was launching the podcast and I suggested we do it together, he didn't blink. He was right on board and has been a, an integral part of this in, in every episode that he's been on it. And uh, I miss him when he's gone and I look forward to having him back next week because, uh, man, I do have a lot of fun talking to Chris. So 
So thank you again for, for joining us. You can find me on social media. I am on Twitter at MedTechTom. I'm on LinkedIn, Tom Salemi. You can find Chris Newmarker on Twitter. He is at Newmarker as in a Newmarker. And he's also on LinkedIn. Honestly, please do reach out to us on those social media channels. Please connect uh, uh, just, just to say hello, or you don't have to say anything at all. But uh, And please do share these podcasts as they come out. When you find something insightful and something important, tell your colleagues and friends about it. Uh, we would love to have more people listening to the podcast. We would love to have a bigger Device Talks community because I think it just uh, just brings in more insights, brings more expert uh, points of view, brings in more expertise, and uh, just literally lifts all boats. So thank you again for your support of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. Tune in next week. We'll have another great episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. Thank you.